0: Welcome to the program. I'm Jeff Shackman. We've talked many times on this program about the move to cities. Young people moving to urban areas in record numbers. Places like New York, San Francisco, Austin, Seattle, Portland becoming hotbeds of innovation. Neighborhoods are gentrifying, and the rental markets in all of these cities are massively overheated. But moving to Detroit is generally not seen as part of this trend. And in spite of the fact that Whole Foods may have opened in downtown Detroit, it's not a place that we often associate with home ownership. My my guest has experiences that are quite contrary to all of this. She is Amy Heimerl. She's a professor of journalism at Michigan State University. She covers small business and urban policy for Fortune, Reuters, and The New York Times. And it is my pleasure to welcome her here to talk about her book, Detroit Hustle, a memoir of life, love and home. Amy Heimerl, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. It's great to have you here. Not everybody is moving to Detroit these days. Talk a little bit about what motivated you <laughs> and your husband to move there.
1: Well, certainly not everybody is moving to Detroit. Um, although you get Patty Smith a couple of years ago, sort of she spent a lot of time, most of her sort of middle years in Detroit when during her marriage. Going back and speaking in New York and saying places like New York are done for creatives, for people who are trying to write or paint or, or produce, go somewhere like Detroit. So I think that was on our mind and certainly has been on the minds of a lot of people who are figuring out how they can both have a home and a sort of creative creative life.
0: I about talk- really what brought my husband... Oh, go ahead. No, go ahead. I was going to say, having a home, though, is something that runs certainly counter to so many trends today. We see, as I mentioned in the introduction, the rental markets in all of these cities heating up, homeownership numbers across the country at an all-time low, and particularly low in in urban areas, even like Detroit.
1: So I think Detroit is actually sort of the counter-narrative to that, in the fact that people can afford to buy a home here, and we have higher homeownership rates than rental rates. So when you think about people being able to be buy a home, have a life versus being priced out, talks of gentrification, usually that comes down squarely on ownership terms because it's easy for neighborhoods in New York or San Francisco to get overheated, overpriced, really gentrification to go into hyper mode when landlords can raise rents you know, between each tenant every year um, here in Detroit where it's more of an ownership town it's harder to get priced out of your neighborhood when you just own. So i think there's some interesting, you know, counter narratives in detroit. Mm-hmm. we're experiencing more of cultural gentrification than actual financial gentrification right now.
0: Talk a little bit uh, about what you mean by that cultural gentrification in detroit.
1: So, it's hard to sort of it's hard to sort of say we're experiencing the traditional, you know, textbook gentrification which usually comes along the lines of increase in income, increase in education, when our per capita income is still less than $25,000, when we still have 40% poverty, when we still have huge you know, issues with education. What we do have is a number of newcomers like my husband and myself, arriving here with income, with, with um, education, And figuring out how is the city being remade to suit those who are coming rather than being a place that recognizes and supports those who've always, always stayed. Detroit, like most cities, suffered, you know, huge amounts of white flight, but that wasn't the beginning of Detroit's population loss. That actually started in the 1950s as manufacturing and the automakers started taking jobs and plants further and further outside the city and people started chasing those jobs. African-Americans couldn't buy homes in those areas because of federal housing policy, they remain in the city. We kind of get, you get green flight, which is just money. So it kind of wraps all together, you know, post-industrial America and, you know, across the city. We get left with a lot of poverty, but we also get left with a really strong middle class who didn't leave even when they could have or other people did, And they've kept this city, they've kept Detroit alive and vibrant and made this community a place that my husband and I would want to come here for, not because of the city, but because of the people. And yet they're watching and saying, okay, as newcomers arrive, are they being thoughtful to what the culture is? Or are they just expecting the city to change its contours to them? Or are they expecting to come and change their contours and fit into the city? And I think that is At the crux, you know, heart of a lot of the gentrification conversation is both a public policy side and a human side of how do we how do what do we expect from new places when we arrive? Do we expect it to just be wherever we've come from, but cheaper? Or are we expecting to be a part of what's there and fit ourselves into that life?
0: I guess the question with Detroit is, is there a there there, given that the population of the city has been so hollowed out, given that the number of people there has been reduced by almost two-thirds? Is there anything left to Detroit in terms of its, its cultural innards to really be a part of? Oh my gosh, yeah. That's
1: something that never left the city. The cultural innards, are here in spades. That's one of the great things is like, you know, we may have lost population, but we never lost soul. So you come here and you realize, you know, whether it's the Charles H Wright museum or the DIA or Motown or, or going to the techno museum, we have a techno museum because of course techno, this is the birthplace of techno with Berlin. There is So much culture and heart and, you know, Elmore Leonard's sort of, you know, famous quote is that there are cities, you know, like Miami that have palm trees or beaches and mountains and gorgeous scenery. And then there are places like Detroit that have to get, you know, work for a living. This is a city that works for a living, and I love that about this city. It's not sitting back and resting on its laurels and, you know, and sort of bike lanes and coffee shops. We all like those things, but it is saying, what is our future? We have this opportunity to forge our future for everybody who's stayed and everybody who's coming. We're doubling down on design. You know, we are the the first city in America to be a, a UNESCO city of design, which is a huge, huge win for this city. And why can we do that? Well, you look about the automakers. We have more manu- we have more engineers per capita than anywhere in the country because we have to make cars. To make cars, you need designers. So we also have a huge hotbed of design. i have added 2,000 new jobs in the last five years and 50 new companies just from one nonprofit, the Detroit Creative Corridor Center, that incubates design. And those are jobs that are coming, you know, to people who already lived here, not just newcomers. So, we're really looking at this great opportunity to build small business, build entrepreneurship, both at the high tech, you know, high growth end of the spectrum and in just a lo- local mom and pop into the spectrum with rebuilding our neighborhood. So if you're somebody who wants to be in a place where you get to be a part of that energy and get to be a part of that community, it's an amazing place. If you want to be a part of community, not just anonymous. Now, if you want, Sort of just a, like I said a more anonymous life. This isn't going to be a great city for you. It's a really small town. We you know everybody seems to know each other, uh, and that's I feel like that's one of the, one of the beauties here is that there's so much to, so much opportunity and so much to already just plug into
0: because people have been keeping the city you know its beating heart going for decades. To what extent is Detroit then competitive almost on a daily basis with other cities in the Rust Belt that are trying to rebuild? I would,
1: say we, I would say we're more competitive. Um, you know, we're right on, you know, we're 80% of the world's, you know, fresh water supply. We're sitting right on that. So we've got shipping, we've got engineering, we've got design. Uh, we've got, we're becoming the you know, we're going to start owning mo- the idea of mobility, which isn't just autonomous cars, but the idea of how do we move goods and people around the world? Detroit, no supply chains like nobody else. So even though Google started with the autonomous car out in Silicon Valley, It's starting to partner with our uh, educational group, you know, the University of Michigan uh, to really bring supply chain and bring manufacturing and bring actual make it happen, get it done kind of stuff, not just the ideas here. We've got this great new uh, autonomous vehicle city that's been built to actually test vehicles, and that's all right outside of Detroit. Uh, So we've got great education. We've got great medical facilities, and fundamentally, we're Detroit. It's just cooler than a lot of the other <laughs> Rust Belt cities. You know, and some of them have, you know, historically cities have liked this, and mayors have liked to say, well, at least we're not Detroit. We try not to be so gauche and, like, you know, name-check other cities that we uh, thankfully aren't.
0: Talk about the manufacturing part of it, because even though manufacturing is coming back in a number of places, the next wave of, of robotics and AI really is changing manufacturing in some profound ways. If you go into even modern auto factories, the the Tesla plant here in Fremont, California, it, it, it is 85 to 90 percent robotics at this point and that seems to be where manufacturing is going.
1: So it is it is more robotics. Um, you know manufacturing is changing especially if you just look at the autos but there's also medical manufacturing. there's a lot more to manufacturing than just sort of the automakers. Which is interesting and sort of a movement back towards sort of a more artisanal type of uh, uh, slow manufacturing. So that's definitely taking hold here. One of the things that we're seeing is a real effort by the community college system here to figure out what those jobs are that help support the robotics, whether that's the programmers, whether that's designers, whether that's maintenance, and really getting people into those programs on the early side so they can come out just as the jobs are hitting. So I feel like Detroit is being particularly forward-thinking, whether it's in construction jobs or manufacturing jobs, about job training. Because the problem is, if the jobs come and people aren't ready, well, they have to go get people from somewhere else. So I feel like the city of Detroit, the state of Michigan, sort of the foundations and nonprofits around it are being really thoughtful about getting people ready for the jobs that are going to be here in three to five years. Mm -hmm. So I think that's how we start to see Detroit come back, is building our existing population and
0: providing opportunities there. Talk a little bit about the economics of Detroit post-bankruptcy.
1: So the economics of Detroit, I mean, I always say the bankruptcy cleared our balance sheet. So just like a personal bankruptcy, it allows you to start, start from scratch. If you're not having to pay creditors, all of a sudden you can invest in city services. So we're rebuilding infrastructure. When I moved here, half of our streetlights were broken. By the end of this year, the city will be completely relit. We went from having EMS and police emergency calls being answered in 100 minutes in some of the, you know, further out areas. We're now down to an average of about eight minutes across the city, which is more in line with the national average. Um, We are seeing a huge investment in sort of blight removal. We're, you know, what's really still causing us trouble, though, is our real estate market. So there's a number of people who would like to be able to buy homes here. And you've all heard about the house for a dollar, a thousand dollars, five thousand dollars in Detroit. The problem isn't the cost of acquisition, though, if you buy a house for a dollar, even in Detroit, there's a reason why it's a dollar. It's the cost of improvements. And so we don't have a lot of financing vehicles available to help people get the credit they need, the capital that they need to rehab these homes that are so dilapidated, so far gone, because banks aren't keen on lending money on a house that won't be worth what you've had to put into it. So our economics there are still very upside down while we try to figure that out and it was something I had to do and face and as part of the story of Detroit hustle.
0: And talk a little bit about that story. You bought this house that was in pretty bad shape for about $35,000 and that was only the beginning. It was only the beginning. So
1: right, so it's a 1914 Georgian revival in a neighborhood that is in the, on the National Register of Historic Places. So it is, you know, an old gracious home. You know, that is going. we decided to do a historic restoration, not a renovation on. It's not a Home Depot special because it's this old historic home and large. But even, you know, even this, even with sort of a stable neighborhood, it the banks could not figure out how to lend to us because we bought it for thirty five thousand. And they're like, even if you put one hundred thousand in, we're not sure it's going to be worth another fifty thousand. So most people are having to find cash. Less than 10 percent of all home sales get mortgages. Most people are having to find cash to purchase and find cash to be able to do the rehab. We ended up putting in almost four hundred thousand on this house, which is more than we initially thought it was going to be. We don't have, you know, marble from Italy and and fa- you know fancy showers and things. It just costs a lot to re- rebuild a house inside three existing walls, which is is what we did. But we have a larger, you know, larger house than we would have had in Brooklyn. We were living in an 800 square foot apartment. Our, you know, monthly housing expenses are still lower. We get an amazing community. So even though we've had to put money into this, I think it's absolutely worth it in the long run because we are, you know, have a beautiful home and a beautiful community and an amazing city that we love. But we have to figure out for the long run, the public policy aspects of how to get the mortgage market, the real estate market flipped back right side up.
0: How did your friends in Brooklyn feel about uh, you taking on this adventure?
1: So they were really, you know, they were really supportive. Our family was surprisingly supportive. We bought the house, and then six weeks later, the city declared bankruptcy. And I think there was a reaction from friends and family at that point of, oh, my gosh, have you made a terrible choice? For us, you know, we were already in it, and we were not betting on the city going up, down, sideways. We were just coming to the city and taking it as it was. But because I'm an economist as well, I have a degree in economics, um, and I've you know, reported on that for a long time, I understood the inner workings of bankruptcy and that while there was going to be some challenges, this also, unlike a, a corporate bankruptcy where you could, you, know, you could say Apple went bankrupt, you sell it off for parts. You don't do that with people or cities. The actual right. um, thing that you're trying to uh, survive and keep going in a municipal bankruptcy is actually the city, so you can't just chop it up so the end result was going to actually be better city services and that's what's happening here um we're still struggling though with how with a still a 40% poverty rate and a city that many residents can't afford to pay their water bill so that continues to i think be the thing that could causes a conundrum for everybody of how do we invest, how do we be a part of the city, and how do we try to make sure everybody starts getting opportunity. Those are the things at the forefront of the conversation here.
0: And in order to accomplish those things, one of the things that it takes, in addition to new people coming in and a vibrant community and all of the things that you've been talking about, is it takes very foresighted political leadership. Talk about that.
1: Mm -hmm. So when when we moved to Detroit, in 2012 um, the mayor sorry the Governor of Michigan had just appointed an emergency manager so for the first several years of our time here this the city was basically taken over by the state uh, that was through the bankruptcy we had uh, an election during that time where Mayor Mike Duggan and a new city council were elected and so far they have seemed to work together very effectively they have seemed to be uh, thoughtful at least at getting to get the city services functioning the kinds of things that i suspect your listeners take as as givens as Uh things that should just just function hadn't been that's you know uh trash pickup that is snow plowing well you might not have snow plowing issues um those are all things that are functioning now and that seems to be a sign of effective political leadership people are i think cautiously optimistic they've been through this before where they've you know elected somebody they think is going to be great for the future and that hasn't always turned out so well. Our, you know, our last mayor, uh, Kwame Kilpatrick, is, of course, in prison. Um, but right now, there's, there's cautious optimism that this is working, if only because the mayor and the city council appear to be having an effective relationship uh, uh, you know, rather than an oppositional relationship, which is more, has been more typical.
0: And what is the state of, of racial issues in Detroit, given these efforts that you're talking about?
1: Well, I think that that is, you know, the conundrum. So, this, you know, one of the things that I you know, love about Detroit is that we just are talking about race headstrong up front in the grocery stores, at the gas station, the conversation about structural racism, who is a winner, who's a loser, who's getting to come, who's a local, who's an us, what our culture is, is just at the forefront of, of everything. As I would say, race relations... Are, are very strong, but at the same time, recognizing those who stayed are primarily African-American and those who are arriving, like my husband and I are primarily white. And so we're having to learn to have a dialogue together, learn to listen. Um, I've been felt very welcomed here in Detroit. My husband and I both at the same time, there is a wariness because of that cultural gentrification, the idea that the city will change to accommodate people like me. And here in a city where when we think about checking your privilege, the idea of privilege is having a job here. I mean, that's very different than a lot of other cities. Uh, And you just have to overlay race and the additional complications of our own country and our own history. I would say that they're you know that they're strong and at the same time that's they're strong because we're able and willing to deal with it talk about it and have it at the forefront of every conversation we're not pretending it doesn't exist like other cities that's not to say there aren't difficulties and challenges and animosity and anger as people watch their city you know sort of is it being taken away from them is it being taken over who you know so much investment you know uh, new buildings being Brought up the Whole Foods you mentioned opening up all sort of in this downtown, midtown district, which is, you know, sort of more young white professionals. Is that the only place investment's going to come? When is it going to come out to the neighborhoods where it does tend to be, uh, you know, poorer areas, more African-American, you know, but at the same time recognizing that there has always been a strong little class here, both that is both African, primarily African-American, also white that stayed, and they're figuring out in these like pockets in these neighborhoods that have always remained stable, what their place is in this revitalization um, and how how it all works together. I think that's a wonderful thing about Detroit right now is the conversation about gentrification, the conversation about race is just playing out here. And we have the opportunity to think about how to do it better than anybody else has done, how to do it in more thoughtful ways, do better policy, to learn from other areas and also take our own experience in and and find good public policy.
0: What is the concern with respect to potential gentrification from people like you and your husband coming in and and making a positive contribution to Detroit? I mean, certainly the area that you left in Brooklyn was once an industrial warehouse area many, many years ago.
1: So, I mean, the area I left in Red Hook was Red Hook, Brooklyn, and it was always a very, as you said, it was warehouses. It was Civil War-era warehouses. It was always mixed, though. So it was a place you know, that both had residential and commercial and industrial all together. Here, Detroit's neighborhoods tend to be, you know, more residential, and then there's an industrial area and a commercial district that may run through it, and then downtown. The concerns about gentrification are honestly that prices are going to rise so fast because people like us arrive and think everything's so cheap. But it is cheap if you come in with resources. I'm fifth-generation native to Colorado, I used to watch people come into Denver from California, from Texas, and Coloradans love to pin it all on California and Texas, and say, oh my gosh, this place is so cheap at $300,000, and raise the, raise the prices to the point where locals, people who had grown up there, whose families had been there, could no longer afford it, and felt pushed out. I think that's the fear here in Detroit, is that people stayed, people believed And that they're going to get pushed out and not be able to be a part of this place. They stuck by because we come in and raise the prices. Uh, At the same time, everybody's sensitive to the idea of what's a functioning market. We need, you know, for people who have owned and stayed here, like my neighbors who have some have been here since the 60s, the 70s, the 80s, the 90s. You know Their houses were worth nothing forever. They would like their houses to be you know, worth an amount of a, a functioning real estate market. So if they need to send a child to college or they need to put their mother in an assisted living facility, they have their house as sort of an asset to draw on because how do most Americans save? It's in their house, usually, not retirement funds. Most Americans use their house as their piggy bank. Uh, for good or for bad, that's how we build wealth. And you think about if African-Americans, you know, historically, because of federal housing policy, weren't able to buy homes, we've got generational lack of wealth building. So what is that creates lack of opportunity to start new businesses, to do new things here in the city, while others just are starting from a different platform? Um, and I think that's sort of the issues of gentrification is, is it Detroit going to be remade just for those who who arrive and at the same time, I, you know, I'm in media. I have to be honest about this. When publications, you know, come into town and write stories, they almost always only show white business owners. They almost only talk about the new and the growth and the opportunity with white photos. Uh, poverty and, you know, every, the sort of de- blight of the city and the destruction is usually shown with African, you know, with the faces of African-Americans So as media, we have to think about how do we talk about the city? Who are we showing? If you come in and you do a story about the new restaurants that are opening and manage to only talk to and show five white business owners, even though I can present you another five new businesses opened by African-Americans, we have to think about why is that happening? What are our cultural biases? What do we keep reflecting back? And if you're African-American and you are from the city and all you see in articles about the future revitalization of the of the city are people who look like me, who are, you know, middle class coming into the city and white. How do you not start to get angry and frustrated when you're doing the work too? You've been here and nobody seems to recognize or reflect back that that exists. All you see is something else. You start to feel invisible. You start to feel like you don't matter. And I think that's the struggle we're facing here in Detroit is, you know, again, that's the sort of the cultural gentrification and the idea of, that's really difficult here, of saviors. So lots of publications write about saving Detroit, and that is very um, very hurtful here when they, when they hear that.
0: How much is there a sense of self-awareness among all the people in, in your community of something you touched on earlier, Detroit potentially being a model for revitalization?
1: I think there's a real awareness of that um, that, which is... We don't know exactly how that's going to work yet. You know, you're in a city that has you know, a lot of history, and so figuring out what has worked, what can work. Um, and again, we're a little different, right? We're more of an ownership than a renter city. So that changes what we're doing, and we're really focusing on how to encourage ownership. So we have a, a, a land bank that is actually auctioning off homes that the city has owned to try to get new people in them for low prices and the ability to rehab them. So that's sort of a new public policy and a new idea. Um, we have a motor city match program that is working with building owners who might have a, a blighted dilapidated building to help them get it up to code. And then they're also working with potential small business owners to get business plans in place and actually, you know, be ready to open a business so that they can be matched with those buildings. So that's sort of interesting public policy policy the head of our downtown Detroit partnership is doing a a big redevelopment on tiger state old tiger stadium. And one of the things he's doing is saying he's going to hold, I think it's 60% of the commercial space will be held for local small businesses and they will be given a reduction in rent over 10 or 15 years. So I think we're doing some innovative things that, you know other cities could start looking to us for that are just happening out of out of necessity because you know and what inventions the necessity is the mother of invention well, we're hmm. kind of at
0: necessity. were there any points after you moved there, even when you were working on the house that you thought what kind of a mistake did we make? never
1: about Detroit um, you know it doesn't mean that it was it hasn't been hard at times in in my book, there's a period I write about especially because I was a journalist covering the bankruptcy and sort of I was in social media all the time, Facebook and Twitter, and sort of hearing all of these conversations we're we're talking about. And people are angry and frustrated and scared and uncertain, and at times it would get overwhelming. And, and, you know, I would feel like I could see myself as a symbol of everything people were angry about because from the outside – You know, I'm a middle-class woman of means coming into Detroit. At the same time, I, you know, grew up incredibly poor in Colorado. Uh, For me to be able to do this, you know, and not live in a trailer, like, this is a huge life step forward considering where I started from. And Detroit likes that. Detroit likes people who actually understand what it is to be blue collar, to have to work. And once they sort of understand, you're not just coming in from a point of privilege and acting like this is your playground and you can disappear whenever you want they're much more welcoming, but that was, those are the difficulties in sort of figuring out how to get to sit in here. My neighborhood was, you know, it's very mixed uh, economically and racially and very welcoming, but sort of my struggle was trying to figure out in my own brain when I got to be a, a Detroiter, when did I get to be an us and not a them? And those were the, those were the challenges with the house There were several times, especially as we couldn't figure out where we were going to get the next infusion of cash to be able to pay for the roof all of a sudden, because we didn't expect to have to replace the roof that we thought, oh my goodness, why, why this house? But my husband always said, like, he fell for this house in the same way he fell for me. He just knew it was the right one. And he saw that more than even I did. And as I'm sitting here today, looking out my back window over the Detroit River, you know, these beautiful trees. I know I'm in the right spot. This is my home. This is my heart. And so I'm ever so thankful he saw the potential even when I didn't.
0: Amy Heimerl, her book is Detroit Hustle, a memoir of life, love, and home. Amy, I thank you so much for spending time with us today. Thank you for having me. It's been wonderful. Thank you.